Hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, brace yourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we pray um, for grace upon grace upon grace as we um, look at your word this morning. We pray for your wisdom and your guidance. And I pray, Lord, as your spirit works, um, that it would prompt us and restore us and unify us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, the passage for today, I can't do the second bit in Romans 15, so you don't have to worry about that today. We're just going to focus on a verse, actually, that uh, wasn't one of the ones that was read to you, but it sort of sums it up a little bit. Um, if you've got your Bibles, page 1140, I'm not going to quote loads and loads of passages, but if it is, it's going to um, mainly be from Romans 14. But Romans 15:7 says, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, that feels quite easy to say. Um, but it's proved quite hard to do. It's not exactly headline news. Not all Christians think the same or find it easy to accept how others think or behave. Some less mature Christians may have their thinking strongly seasoned by their life experiences and shaped by the prevailing culture rather than biblical principles. Paul gives the Roman church this instruction. I think he's speaking mainly to the Gentiles here. Um, verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith, verse 2, allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one that doesn't eat anything, everything, must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Disputes between Jew and Gentile Christians often centered on the obedience to the law. You can replace disputes about food laws. It's up a few notches if the food's been sacrificed to idols. You can replace it for Sabbath laws and maybe appropriate conduct in worship. I trust that few of us feel that being a vegetarian or not is a first-level salvation matter. Would we think it an outrage? I hope so. Vegetable eater or meat eater if we were excommunicated for our eating habits. You might justifiably feel strongly about food laws if you've been a devout Jew all your life and now Christian believers in front of your very eyes don't share your table manners or your dietary requirements. We're reminded in the passage that our unity in Christ is far more important than falling out about disputable matters. The problem is deciding what is a legitimate disputable matter 
and what we need to let go. The Bible is our guide, but sadly, some read it and understand it differently. Some disputable matters are first-order matters, not negotiable. The basis of our faith would unravel if we pulled that thread. Some disputable matters are not first-order salvation matters, but they are serious. On sub-subjects, it's legitimate to hold different views. Other disputable matters are rather trivial, uh, trivial in um, comparison, and we shouldn't waste time on them, but we do. In my opinion, what follows are not first-order matters, but Christians over the years have given different weighting to this, so you get to play, okay, between 1 and 10, 10 being sort of a very serious matter and one you wouldn't really sort of weigh it too highly. Um, what would you say about these things? Um, you need to know that some of these issues have deeply damaged people and split the church. And whatever weighting you give, some of these matters are unarguably problematic if done in excess. Drinking alcohol, gambling, buying a lottery ticket, having a punt on the Grand National, Sunday trading, buying petrol or bread on Sundays, playing sport on Sunday, Football or tennis, when I went to my curacy church, I didn't understand that playing tennis on the Sunday was not the done thing at all because that was considered to be not very restful and work. I suppose it depends how you play. Watching others play sport on Sundays... Putting washing out on Sundays. This is my grandma. She'd never put washing out on a Sunday. Do you use your washing machine and tumble dryer? Smoking. Church history is littered with disputes and schisms, some around music and worship. We all have our preferences and like to impose them upon other people. More contentious, but accepted and celebrated here, are women in leadership. What about divorce and remarriage? For the record, I'm going through the right process. I've remarried quite a number of divorced couples. It's not the situation that we wanted to face, but we have to deal with what is. Debate is more intense if it's a doctrinal matter or if the matter appears to be straying from a plain reading of Scripture or the historic understanding of church practice. Um, call me sad, but I've been reading a book by Simon Ponsonby who's written 52 sermons on Romans. I've not got through them all, but in the one of them on this subject, he quotes John Stott, 
who most of us know about, very eminent uh, evangelical, who was interviewed in Christianity Today in 1996. Stott was asked what issues would lead him to leave the Church of England. What would you say? He offered three. First, if the Church of England formally declined, sorry, formally denied the humanity or divinity of Christ. Secondly, if the Church of England denied justification by grace through faith. And thirdly, and this is more of a live issue and contentious issue today than it was in 1996, if the Church of England approved homosexual partnerships as a legitimate alternative to heterosexual marriage. Most Orthodox Christians would agree that the first two are fundamental questions of faith, first order matters. The third is an extremely important ethical matter, but not all Christians see this, and we know it from the debates that's going on in society. Not everyone sees it as a first order matter on which their faith hangs. You'll have your own opinion. I still believe that a plain reading of Scripture supports a traditional view about sex and marriage. However, a significant number of people within and outside the church are challenging this view. It's a fact. Some say some same-sex attraction is freely talked about and accepted by many in our society. Our education system teaches our children to accept difference and to challenge any form of prejudice. What has become especially difficult for Christians who hold a more traditional view like me on sex and marriage is that uh, many now argue that same-sex unions are a moral equivalent to heterosexual marriage. Legally, our government permit and encourage same-sex marriage. For now, the Church of England and its ministers are exempt from this law. Whilst we might respect the legal right of people to choose to be in same-sex unions, in my view, to bless same-sex unions um, takes us beyond what the Bible teaches. Romans 1, it's a whole list of things, so you mustn't sort of pluck this one out. You need to read the whole list, actually. is fairly uncompromising about some of this. Interestingly, in June 2017, the Scottish Episcopal Church made the choice to allow same-sex marriage. This brought them in line with secular practice. Some evangelical churches left the Scottish Episcopal Church, but others who hold traditional views stayed. I was told recently as a surprise that some of the churches that left had struggled Not sure why, but I suspect that with church schism, there's always collateral damage. 
an evangelical charismatic church that holds traditional views on this subject, stayed within the Episcopal Church and for now seems to be flourishing and not affected by the wider church decision. There'll be a full range of examples that I don't know about that sort of argue the point one way or another, but time will tell what God blesses. Ultimately, whatever our views and practice on same-sex marriage, God will judge us all with justice and with mercy. I was asked this week uh, if the Church of England went down the route of uh, same-sex blessings, uh, what would my response be? Nice one. I think that even if there was a change in church law, I can't foresee a day when those who hold a traditional view would be forced to conduct same-sex blessings uh, in this place against our conscience. If there were attempts to force us to do this against our conscience, then churches and vicars like me would need to respond. If we take a more traditional view on marriage, as I do, namely that Christian marriage is between a man and a woman, we need to be careful that if and when we promote this view, we don't become unkind or judgmental in ways that cause us to sin and others to sin and heap condemnation on other people. I was just listening to the radio yesterday. I think the BBC, um, Radio 4, um, there are lots of people being interviewed. The majority of them seem to be supporting a same-sex um, agenda. But you can't deny some of the stories that have happened to people and the persecution is just... It is just completely wrong. And um, folks have been felt uh, made to feel unwelcome in a supposedly loving community when they've had struggles with their sexuality, got extremely depressed. And it's a fact that some have taken their lives. Now, what's going on there? It's God's job to convict if conviction is required and not ours. It's easy also to be subjective about these things and trust our feelings. And I want to argue that Scripture needs to be our guide. Christian leaders that I respect, some with fruitful ministries, have taken a different view on this matter than I. We'll know of people who are same-sex attracted, friends, colleagues, family members, when you know people and their life stories, it's more likely that we'll have a more com compassionate response, even if we hold to traditional views. I've needed to ask for more grace and wisdom when expressing my views, and I'm sure you're going to be the judge of that this morning, whether I have or not. It's so easy to get it wrong. Even if we say the right thing, we can do so in the wrong way. For the record, all people of any sexual orientation are welcome to this church. Whilst we cannot deny that some people are same-sex attracted, as countercultural as it sounds and as harsh as this may feel, 
I don't believe that the church has any biblical warrant to blame, to bless same-sex marriage. This might feel like a tough call, but from this biblical perspective, it seems that any choice for same-sex attracted friendships or relationships requires that they should be celibate. If the Church of England change its policy, being true to my conscience and under my leadership, neither I nor members of our staff team will be able to conduct same-sex blessings for marriages in this place. What about heterosexual relationships and marriage? We often keep silent about this as well. It's not popular. And we, our children and grandchildren, may not have adhered to church teaching. The Bible teaches that the only place for sexual relationships are within marriage. That might be a nudge for heterosexuals to modify their behavior or to consider marriage sooner rather than later. Now, I know there's all sorts of practical reasons why folks don't do this. They've seen the example of their parents and grandparents who've split up and they're not going, whoopee, marriage is the answer. There's also financial considerations as well. It's a huge pressure. Maybe the challenge for churches like us is to find out ways that we can do affordable wedding ceremonies and receptions. If adult members of our families make the life choice to have sex outside marriage, we need to know how to respond in truth and love. We obviously keep on loving them, even if we don't condone what they do. Back to Romans 15, 7. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. This is hard to apply if we fundamentally disagree on first order matters. However, on less vital matters, I think there's a way to accept another human being as valued without accepting or condoning certain views or behaviors. When Christ accepted us as his children, there were things that we needed to repent of and to change. Then God began his process of transformation. Now, you might be relieved, but I'm going to park the issue of human sexuality and sexual practice. Just put it to one side for now, and we'll look briefly at some more general principles raised in Romans 14. So, Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. It's easy out of self-righteousness to put obstacles in other people's way that God wouldn't put there. All of us have probably been guilty of doing this. This is not an excuse to peddle cheap grace. We need to make the gospel plain. Discipleship requires a choice, and following Jesus is costly. With disputable matters, we need to make sure that our way of doing our discipleship 
doesn't put a stumbling block in front of others. Tom Wright gives this example. I might not have remembered it very well, but it'll do. Um, He gave a a story of um, a man and a son sort of hauled up in a house. There'd been a massive snowstorm, and the son thought he ought to do something about it. He got the shovel out and started to clear the path, and he cleared it perfectly. Wonderful, flat, straight, clear path, safe to walk on. He came back in the house, and when he came back in the house, there was shouting. It was from the neighbor. He'd emptied his snow onto their path. And sometimes in our righteousness and our self-righteousness, we can just sometimes make it difficult for others. My daughter's moved home. Uh, We don't go in her room. Um, And the other day, I think she got the hints and the message that maybe something needed to be done about bringing order out of chaos. And she cleared her room and she emptied, just for a short period of time, all the stuff on the landing. Now at night time, with the lights out, that was quite a dangerous place to be. How about your recycling habits? Are you righteous and pure about this? How might you feel if you're in a third world country and you've just received a shipment of our recycled waste. Romans 14, 14, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in in itself. The issue here in the Bible passage is about food, but it could so easily be about other lower order matters. Christ, when he came, celebrated the law but superseded the law. It wasn't necessary, all these laws in the same way. In Acts 11, You'll know the story of the Apostle Peter, who was a righteous Jew, been a practicing Jew all his life. And he had this dream of this sheet coming down from heaven and all sorts of animals and birds and reptiles were in there. And he knew that they were unclean, but a word from heaven came, kill and eat. He said, I can't possibly eat anything that is unpure. But the voice said, don't call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. Peter went on to witness the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. They were filled with God's holy presence, though their eating habits and their Sabbath laws didn't line up to Jewish custom. Verse 14 reminds us to be sensitive And don't fall out over minor disputable matters. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. I think I've probably not got long, but I've got loads of stories about this. You have to think about them when you're managing churches because people come with all sorts of opinions. But uh, we used to have, um, when I was a proper vicar, uh, a rector in Chipstead, the, then um, we used to have a rector's garnered party in our house and it sort of um, outgrew. It was quite posh, actually. I think we might have done cream teas and everything. I know you do that sort of thing here as well. But we, there was no parking and we sort of outgrew the venue. So um, my parish administrator at the time said, Patrick, can we have the garden party at the church? 
So that's what they did, and it grew and it grew, and we decided we weren't going to... And we were just careful about what we had, and we were there to be generous. It wasn't meant to make any money at all, and folks brought gifts and things like that, loads of booze, and there were one or two games that um, were played um, that involved a bit of cash from time to time. But loads of people came. We had a wonderful time. Um, but just from time to time, it probably doesn't happen in Claygate very often, but it used to rain in Chipstead. And, uh, and it could be a washout. So what's your policy? And right from the start, I said, I don't want anything going on in the churchyard that we wouldn't be comfortable about having in the church. So that was the deal. So it's good enough to do out there. And the same thing could be true of your homes. I don't want anything going on in your homes. You know, within reason, that would be sort of unholy, if you like. Anyway, sure enough, the rain came down and the floods went up. (laughs) And we needed to have a wet weather plan for our garden party. And now it's massive, like thousands of people came. We came into the church and it was all going well and we set it up. Wonderful, wonderful time. Some were a little bit uncomfortable about it happening. And uh, the youth group had their thing and they wanted prime of place. So whatever they did, they thought just beyond the, um, the communion rail, that would be the best place for doing that. Um, what I didn't realize when I sanctioned it was um, that they were going to be doing the tombola there. I got a few pen pals about that. And it's not so much that the tombola shouldn't happen, but actually where they were doing the tombola was a very sacred space for quite a few people where they knelt humbly before Almighty God. It was a place of intimacy, a thin place. So the next time... The rains came down and the floods came up when we had it in church. We made sure that we preserved that bit of church for a bit more prayer and reflection rather than tombola. If your brother or sister is distressed, verse 16, because of what you eat or, 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 you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not a matter of eating and drinking, getting bogged down with disputable matters, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a basic lesson today, but quite hard to apply. Don't cause others to fall into sin. Don't wind each other up unnecessarily. Verse 13, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make your mind up not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in their way. Our unity in Christ is far more important than falling out about disputable matters. Keep the main thing the main thing. For me, what follows are of primary importance. We believe in one God, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit. Amen. Agreed. We believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth, lived an earthly life, died on the cross, and rose in bodily form from the dead. Amen. We agree. We believe that we can only be part of God's eternal family 
if we respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. With God's help, we must be faithful to the great commandments and great commission. There are guiding scriptures for the year. We know them, and I never tire of repeating them. So here goes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the wonderful promise is that we will be with Christ and he will be with us forever. Amen.